The New Testament reading for this morning is Acts 1, 1 through 11. The Old Testament reading and the sermon text is Exodus 18, 1 through 12. Acts 1, 1 through 11, and then Exodus 18, 1 through 12. The catechism question for today um, and this week emphasizes that the Holy Scriptures are the Word of God. Have you ever stopped to think about that? They are the Word of God. Uh, we are handling God's Word. And uh, if we believe this to be true, then there ought to be a, a sense of reverence that we bring to the reading of God's Word and even hearing the preaching of God's most holy Word. And this is why I will sometimes say, hear now the reading of the Word of God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let us go now to Exodus 18 and read verses 1 through 12, the sermon text for today. Exodus 18.1 Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, 
who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. The theme of the previous passage is warfare. The theme of the passage that is before us today is witnessing. So from warfare to witnessing, it's an interesting transition. It's a pretty extreme transition, in fact. Uh, the scene of the previous passage was, was battle. There Aaron, uh, excuse me, uh, there Joshua fought as, as Moses lifted his hands uh, to heaven. Uh, but here the scene is very different. It is familial. Here Moses meets with his wife and his children that he had been separated from, from for some time. Here he meets with his own father-in-law and witnesses to him in the tent concerning all the good that God had done for the people of Israel. In the previous sermon, I said that Christian sojourners must engage in spiritual warfare. And in this sermon, I will say that Christian sojourners must witness. At first glance, these two activities seem to be very different. They seem to be unrelated. But upon closer examination, we will see that the two things are tightly linked in the outworking of God's plan of redemption. Victory in warfare must result in witnessing. God brings victory. God brings redemption. And what do the people of God then do in response to this? But witness. They are to testify to, to the goodness of God, to the grace that He has shown to them, to the victory that He has won. And so warfare and witnessing are, in fact, tightly linked together. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm not speaking of ordinary warfare here. I'm not talking about the kind of warfare that is fought between the common nations of the earth, but spiritual warfare, warfare that has to do with the spiritual conflict between Satan and those who belong to him by birth and Christ and those who belong to him by faith. There is a battle that rages in the spiritual realm. It does manifest itself on earth, but it is in the end a battle for the souls of men and for the glory of God. The story of Scripture may be described as a story about this spiritual war. It began with the temptation of man in the garden. The treason of Adam was the spark. The declaration of war was made by God himself when he declared that the serpent, when he declared to the serpent that one would arise from the offspring of the woman who would crush his head. Until then, until the full and final defeat of the evil one, there would be conflict or warfare between those who belonged to God by faith and those whose allegiance was with the serpent. Old Covenant Israel's wars, as earthly and natural as they were, must be viewed as spiritual wars. They were holy wars, for they were divinely sanctioned. They were fought not for selfish gain, but for the glory of God. They fought not for the expansion of borders, but for the procurement, nor for the procurement of personal wealth, but for the advancement of God's kingdom on earth and for the accomplishment of His program of redemption." The wars of Old Covenant Israel were holy wars, for in those days the Lord was fulfilling the promises that He made to Abraham concerning His offspring possessing the land of Canaan to become a great nation with kings to govern them. 
And we know that the purpose of this was to prefigure the kingdom of God on earth until the promised Messiah would emerge from this people to atone for sins, to defeat the evil one, and to usher in the kingdom of God with power. What am I here doing, brothers and sisters, but trying to uh, keep in your minds the big picture story. As we consider these individual texts, we must not lose sight of this big picture story, the spiritual battle that has raged ever since man's fall into sin. The battle between God and Satan, the battle between God's people and those who are aligned with, with Satan. Israel, as a nation, Israel's wars must be viewed in that light for what God was doing amongst them very much had to do with the accomplishment of our redemption, the bringing of the Christ or the Messiah into the world. This is not an ordinary thing that we are considering here. This is a supernatural thing. This has to do not with ordinary history, but with the history of redemption, with God's redeeming work. Here, of course, I'm reiterating what was said in the previous sermon. When we consider the war, the wars of Old Covenant Israel... We must see them as unique and holy, for the Lord commanded these wars. He fought for His people in a special way. These wars, unlike all other wars, had something to do with the accomplishment of God's plan of redemption in Christ. For from this nation, the Messiah, the skull-crushing seed of the woman, would be brought into the world. And until then, this nation would be preserved in the land of Canaan, the promised land. There the kingdom of God would be prefigured. I'm, I'm here introducing concepts to you also that are going to become very significant later in our study of the book of Exodus. There the kingdom of God would be prefigured. It, it would not come in power upon them. And that is why John the Baptist and Jesus preached in this way, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, therefore the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It came in power in the days of Jesus, but it was prefigured there in the nation of Israel. In that nation, in the priesthood, in the temple, there God's kingdom was prefigured on earth. There the Israelites would guard the precious and very great promises of God. There they would worship the Lord as they lived in covenant with Him. There they would be God's holy people. And so the wars that they fought were holy wars. For these wars, unlike all other wars, were about the advancement of God's kingdom, the accomplishment of His plans and purposes, and were for His glory. And it is no wonder then that victory in warfare gave way to witnessing. It is no wonder then that victory in warfare for Israel gave way to witnessing. After the exodus and after the victory that Israel won over Amalek, Moses witnessed, he testified concerning the mercy and grace of God toward Israel and of his greatness. Warfare gave way to witnessing. And brothers and sisters, if Moses was moved to witness or to testify concerning the grace and greatness of God after Israel's deliverance from Egypt and Joshua's victory over Amalek at Rephidim, how much more so ought we be moved to witness or to testify concerning the grace and greatness of God now that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from bondage to sin and the fear of death, through Jesus' victory over the evil one on the cross. That is the point of today's sermon. If Moses was eager to witness concerning the redemption that was accomplished in his day, the redemption of Israel from Egypt, and the earthly victories that were won through Joshua, 
how much more so should we be eager to witness concerning the good news of Jesus Christ that Jesus, the second Joshua, has come to deliver us not from Egyptian bondage, but from bondage to sin, from Satan, from the fear of death. The victory that Christ has won is infinitely greater. We should therefore be even more eager to witness or to testify concerning the goodness of God, His grace and mercy, the victory that He has won the salvation that has been made available to us through faith in the Messiah, who has emerged from Israel in the fullness of time. I alluded to this in the previous sermon. I think now would be a good time to state it explicitly. Jesus is the Greek pronunciation of the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua was a type of Christ. It was through Joshua who was introduced to us in the previous passage, that God worked the victory for Israel over Amalek. It would be Joshua who would lead Israel into the promised land. And I am saying to you that Joshua and the victories won by him foreshadowed the Joshua to come. His victory over Satan and the leading of his people, the Israel of God, into the promised land, the new heavens and new earth. The first Joshua and the victories he won was a picture, a foretaste, a foreshadowing of Jesus, the second Joshua. The second Joshua is much greater than the first. The victory that the second Joshua has won is much greater than the first. And so we must be found rejoicing in him and testifying concerning the grace of God that has been shown to us in him. Again, I ask if Moses was eager to witness concerning the earthly deliverance and victory that God has worked for old covenant Israel, how much more should we be eager to witness concerning the eternal deliverance and victory that God has worked for his elect through Jesus the Christ? So then, the first and main point of the sermon is this, Christian sojourners must witness. Christian sojourners must witness. In verse 1, we read that Jethro the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, we were introduced to Jethro for the first time way back in 2.18 of the book of Exodus. In that passage, he is called by the name Ruel. After that, he is called by the name Jethro. These are two names for the same man. Moses married Jethro's daughter after he took refuge with him after fleeing Egypt as a relatively young man. You remember that whole part of the story, I hope. Uh, Moses lived in Jethro's clan for a very long time. He tended his flocks. In fact, this was what Moses was doing when the Lord spoke to him in the burning bush and called him to act as the deliverer of his people. He was tending to Jethro's flocks. Undoubtedly, Moses had told Jethro about the Lord God. I'm sure that he communicated to him the same truths that are co contained for us in the book of Genesis. Please track along with me here. I, I, we, we need to consider this little story today in light of the whole of the Pentateuch, Genesis, the story of Genesis, and also Exodus. We, we need to understand that Moses wrote these books. Don't forget that. And I am saying, undoubtedly, Moses had told Jethro in those many years that he lived in his midst, he had told him about the Lord God. I'm sure he communicated to him the same truths that are contained for us in Genesis. He testified that the Lord was the creator of heaven and earth, that he had created man upright and entered into a covenant with him, but that man fell. 
Surely Moses told Jethro along with his wife and children about the promises made to his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And certainly Moses reported to Jethro about the call of God that was upon him after his encounter with God in the burning bush. I think we are to assume that that everything that was in Moses' mind and heart concerning the history of his people was shared with Jethro in those many years that he spent with him. But up to now, there is no indication that Jethro believed in Yahweh. There is no indication of it. The scriptures say that Jethro was the priest of Midian. He was concerned with matters of worship, therefore. He was viewed by his people as a spiritual leader. What exactly were his beliefs? What did the priest of Midian believe? What did he teach? We don't know for sure. We might wonder just how pure or false the religion was that he promoted. But here it seems that the Lord has gotten his attention. Jethro heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. How did Jethro hear about it? I suppose it could be that Moses sent messengers to him, but it may also be that the word had naturally spread to him concerning what the Lord had done to the Egyptians and to the so-called gods of Egypt. We, We know that the word had spread to surrounding nations, for other passages say that they trembled as Israel drew near to them. So the fame of God had spread to the other nations quite naturally in those days, and perhaps it came to Jethro uh, also. And Jethro came to Moses, having heard of what the Lord had done for Israel to deliver them. And he brought his daughter and grandsons, that is to say Moses' wife and children, with him. Another question that we might wonder about is this, why was Moses separated from his wife and children? Why was he separated from them? And commentators do debate this. Some think that there was some sort of break in the relationship between Moses and his wife. Uh, That would mean that perhaps even she was unconvinced that Moses was called by God and then convinced when she heard the news of the deliverance of Israel. I suppose that is possible. Others think that Moses had sent his wife and children back home for their safety and called for them once things were were settled, once the deliverance had been accomplished and once victory had been won. There they were settled then in the the wilderness. I, I lean towards this second of these two opinions. But here we learn the name of Moses' two sons along with their meaning. Verse 3 The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Names are very significant. They're they're important uh, in this culture and in the scriptures. Gershom sounds like the Hebrew word for sojourner. And so his name was to, to function as a perpetual memorial to the fact that Moses himself had been a sojourner all his life and was a sojourner now along with Israel. Eliezer means, my God is help. What a beautiful name that is. And so Eliezer's name was a perpetual reminder to the faithfulness of God towards Moses and to the people of Israel in general. So then Jethro journeys to Moses as they encamped at the mountain of God, that is near Sinai, and he brought Moses' wife and children with him. I think you would agree with me that the scene is is very sweet. It's a blessed reunion after a long time of separation. And Moses must have been very pleased to see his wife and children. But notice the story does not focus on that. Um, The details of their reunion, they are mentioned to us rather factually. 
But the story here focuses upon Moses' interaction with his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. I think this is very significant. The point is not to downplay the joyousness of the reunion between Moses and his wife and children, but to emphasize the interaction between Moses, the prophet and priest of Israel, and Jethro, the priest of Midian. So here we have two priests standing with one another, Moses and his father-in-law, Moses the priest of Israel, and, and also Jethro the priest of Midian. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. They had a conversation there in the tent. In other words, Moses witnessed to Jethro. He testified concerning the redemption that the Lord had accomplished for Israel. And I want you to notice these things. One, Moses' witness was not forced but was natural. He greeted his father-in-law in an honorable way. He invited him into his home and he spoke naturally to him while sitting around the table as it were. They didn't sit around tables like we do, but I think you get the point. He, he witnessed to him in a very natural way. And brothers and sisters, we should be eager to testify concerning the redemption that Christ has accomplished for us. And in my experience, it is best when we, tes- when we testify in a natural way instead of a forced way. I think, brothers and sisters, we need to, to learn or remember to simply be friendly to be kind and hospitable to others, to develop relationships with others uh, so that we might truly love them in a sincere way, but also find opportunity to speak of the grace of God with them concerning Christ and all that He has accomplished for us. We are to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in us, Yet we are to do it with gentleness and with respect. Moses did that very thing here with his father-in-law. He, he spoke to him naturally. He spoke to him respectfully. He testified to the goodness of God in a gentle and respectful way. Two, Moses told the story of redemption. What, what exactly did he say to Jethro? What exactly did he say to Jethro? We don't know for sure. But I think there is very good reason to believe that what he said to Jethro was set against the backdrop of the story of Genesis 2. I've already touched upon this, but, but what God was doing for, for Israel to redeem them from Egypt, we know this already from our study of the book of Exodus, what God was doing for Israel to redeem them from Egyptian bondage can only really be understood against the backdrop of the story of Genesis. Okay, God is going to pull this people out of Egyptian bondage, but where did this people come from and why does He care for them at all? Why is he doing this? The the redemption of of Israel from Egypt can only be understood against the story that is contained for us in the book of Genesis. And so I have said, I think it is safe to assume that Moses had already communicated the the message of creation, fall, and the promise of redemption to Jethro. And and now as they meet together in the tent near Sinai, I assume that Moses told Jethro a story similar to the very one that we now have contained for us in the book of Exodus. I think he told Jethro all about the story that we have been considering from Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 17. Are you following along with me here? There's no reason to assume that he told him another story. I'm sure he told Jethro this story 
Moses is the author of both Genesis and Exodus, not to mention Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And yes, we confess that he wrote the scriptures under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but this does not mean that these stories were not near and dear to his heart while raised in Egypt, while exiled in Midian, while standing before Pharaoh, and while leading the people out of Egypt towards Sinai. These stories were in Moses' mind and heart before he wrote them down, and here we see that they were on his lips too. He told Jethro all about what the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and how the Lord had delivered them. Brothers and sisters, I ask you this. Do you know the story of redemption? Are you familiar with it? So familiar with it that you could sit at a table with someone and articulate to them the history of what God has done to redeem us from our sins. Is it treasured in your mind and heart so that you can tell others? If we hope to be effective witnesses to others regarding the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus, we must know the story of redemption. And may I suggest to you that it is best to start at the beginning when speaking of the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. If I were to ask you, what is the gospel? Where would you start? Where would you start? What is the gospel? What is the good news um, through which we come to have salvation? What, what is that message? Where would you begin? Would you begin with the death of Christ? I hope not. The death of Christ, um, its significance cannot be understood apart from the backstory. Why did he die? What is sin? What is the sin that you were saying that he died to atone for? I, I don't understand it. If someone is unfamiliar with the scriptures, they will not comprehend the significance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It, it would just seem like a, a, a disjointed um, fairy tale or myth to them. But when you explain to them the significance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, his ascension to the Father's right hand, in the context of the totality of scripture, then then it makes sense. Ah, oh, this is why Christ came. This is why He lived as He did, and this is why He died. So I am saying to you, we must be familiar with the story of redemption. It is best to start at the beginning when speaking of the redemption that is ours in Christ. It is very difficult, if not impossible, to understand the truth about who Christ is and what He has accomplished without the backstory. And so testify to the hope that is in you by starting with creation and the fall. After that, you may tell people about God's gracious plan of redemption. Moses had the promises of God concerning Christ, and he witnessed God's redeeming power displayed before his very eyes. But we have something greater. We have the fulfillment of those promises now. We have received the good news about the accomplishment of our eternal redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so I'm saying that, brothers and sisters, we are to tell that story. We are to tell people about creation, fall, and redemption. Our redemption was prefigured in the Exodus, but realized in the cross of Christ. Tell people about that and urge them to repent and believe upon the Messiah. Three, Moses told Jethro about all the hardship that had come upon them in the way. I really appreciate that little that little statement there. Not only did Moses tell Jethro about all of, all of the good that God had done for Israel and about his great power, he also emphasized the hardships too. You know, what hardships? Well, well, they must be the hardships that are recorded for us in the pages of Exodus. I'm thinking of the lack of faith regarding water and food. I'm, I'm thinking of 
the perpetual grumbling. Remember, Israel grumbled, grumbled, grumbled all along the way. And even the threats against Moses' life from the people of Israel as they grew discontent and angry included in these hardships must also have been the assault of Amalek. The Lord had delivered Israel from Egypt and from all these hardships. It, it was the Lord who did it, despite Israel's weaknesses. And here Moses testifies to the Lord's powerful provision. Brothers and sisters, when you witness, do not be afraid to highlight the hardships that you have endured and to place emphasis even upon your own weaknesses and failings. The truth is this, we are weak, but He is strong. And when we testify concerning the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus, we must tell the truth, brothers and sisters. Moses told the truth about Israel's lack of faith, their fear, and his also. The weakness of their military, the weakness of his own arms there as he stood up on the, the mountain to support Joshua in the battle as he interceded on behalf of Israel. He couldn't even hold his own arms up, you know. He had to be supported by others. I, I think Moses told this story. Why, though? Why did he tell it? Why did he include the hardships that they faced along the way? I think it is this, to give glory to God. To say without a shadow of a doubt that this was the Lord's work, not ours. Our military was so weak, we would have been obliterated, Jethro. I mean, we were utterly defeated. Joshua was being overrun. But when I lifted my hands to heaven and pleaded with the God of heaven to give Joshua the victory, the victory was ours, the victory was won. It's not Joshua, it's not our military, it's not me, it's the Lord. That was the message that was communicated by Moses to Jethro as he testified not only to the power of God, but also concerning the hardships faced upon the way. We ought to give glory to God by doing the same, brothers and sisters. We must tell the truth regarding our weaknesses and God's strength, our unworthiness, and about God's abundant mercy. And so I ask you, will you witness? Will you witness? And I'm saying that we must. Old Covenant Israel was to witness. This is not just a a new covenant thing. This is not just for the new covenant people of God. Do you see it that old covenant Israel was also to witness? They were to testify to the nations concerning Yahweh. They were to call the nations to repentance as the glory and power of God was manifest in and through them. That is what Moses was doing here. Jethro, a Gentile. Jethro, a non-believer. Jethro, the priest of Midian. Moses testified to him concerning what God had done for Israel. But New Covenant Israel is to witness too. New Covenant Israel does not have a land of their own from which they call the nations to come and worship. That is what happened in Old Covenant times. Uh, this people was set apart as a holy people. They were given a holy land. And so when they witnessed, they called to the nations saying, Come and worship the Lord. Come and worship Yahweh. No, under the new covenant, the church is to go to the nations. And this is what Christ said to his disciples at his ascension. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Do you see the difference? Old covenant Israel was to witness, and so too is new covenant Israel. Uh, but the focus is, is different. We, we do not call the nations to come into this, to this land that is ours. We do not have a land of our own. We are sojourners. No, we go to the nations and we implore the nations to turn from their sins, to look to the Messiah for the forgiveness of sins. 
We must witness, brothers and sisters. We must be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We must pray for opportunities to do this. We must look for opportunities and take them when they come. We must tell the truth about creation, man's fall into sin, and the redemption that God has accomplished for us in Christ. We must urge men and women to turn from their sins to Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of life eternal. Christian sojourners must witness. The second point of the sermon is really a sub-point to the first, and it is this. To witness faithfully, Christian sojourners must contemplate, comprehend, and cherish the significance of the victory that Christ has won for them. I've drawn this second point from the enthusiasm that I sense in Moses to testify to Jethro. It's not stated explicitly, but you can sense it, can't you, in the passage? Uh, Here Moses uh, receives his wife and his children back, and that must have been a wonderfully joyous thing. But what is the emphasis upon the text? He bows down before Jethro. He greets him, asks of his welfare, invites him into the tent. And and, and the the sense that you get, um, and especially when you consider Jethro's response, which we will come to in just a moment, is that... Moses was eager to testify concerning this good news. Uh, He had contemplated the significance of the redemption that Israel had um, experienced. He he had contemplated it. He had had really begun to cherish it in his own heart, and, and he communicates it to Jethro in this way. We know that Jethro was moved by Moses' testimony to rejoice and to bless the Lord and to worship by this approach from Moses. I think... That is what the text strongly implies. Moses was blown away by what the Lord had done for Israel. He marveled at the thought of the great act of redemption that was accomplished through him and before his eyes. We should not forget that it was not long before this that Moses was reluctant to be used by the Lord. This was not not long before. When God called Moses out of the burning bush, what did Moses do? He kind of argued with God in a way. He pleaded with the Lord to send someone else. But think of all that Moses had witnessed from his encounter with the Lord in the burning bush through to the defeat of Amalek at Rephidim. Think of all that Moses himself had experienced as he was just kind of carried along in this, you know, as the Lord faithfully worked through him, performing miracles through him, pouring out the plagues, uh, bringing Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness through the Red Sea. I mean, think of all that he had experienced. Uh, And now here he is in the wilderness, having just defeated Amalek through Joshua with the help of the Lord. And certainly he began to contemplate uh, what had been done. He began to comprehend, I think, in a fuller way the significance of this. He cherished it in his own heart and he began to feel this urge to to share this good news, this marvelous story with others. I, I think a similar thing could be said for the first disciples of Jesus. We remember that they were deeply discouraged and dejected when Christ was crucified and buried. They went away to their homes, defeated. But when Christ rose from the grave in victory, and when he showed them from the scriptures how he was the fulfillment of all the law, the prophets, and the psalms, The scriptures say that their hearts burned within them. Remember? 
as they considered the victory that Christ had won and as they contemplated the significance of his resurrection in light of the promises previously made, then, only then, were they moved to faithfully witness. Stated differently, it was only after comprehending the marvelous goodness of the good news that the first disciples of Jesus were moved to testify to others concerning what the Lord had done. Before they comprehended the significance of Christ's death, They went away and they were just done. But Christ rose from the grave and he taught them from the scriptures. Then they were moved to faithfully witness, even to the point of death. Have you ever received good news, brothers and sisters? I I know that you have, and I'm here not talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but ordinary good news. Good news about a job promotion, the improvement of health of a loved one. A pregnancy, an engagement, that kind of good news, that is what I have in mind. Have you ever received good news? I know that you have. There's something about good news that excites the heart and stirs within us a desire to share it with others. Good news kind of produces this within us very naturally. When good news comes to us, what do we want to do except pick up the phone and call a beloved friend or a relative and to tell them, hey, I, just, I have to share this with you. This marvelous thing happened to me today, and I don't know why. I, I, just want to, I just want to let you know. I want to pass it along to you. My, my heart is excited within me. My heart is overjoyed, and I want, to, I want to share it with you so that you can rejoice with me. Isn't that the natural response to receiving good news? I think everyone experiences this. We, we want to tell people about the good thing that has happened to us. Good news has this effect on us. It excites the heart. It compels us to share. And the point I am making is this. Christian sojourners will witness. They will be eager to testify concerning the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus only when they come to see the good news of the gospel as the good news that it is. Yes, we may witness sporadically for a time being moved by a sense of duty, but the one who has contemplated Christ and His work, who has comprehended its significance and its goodness, and who truly cherishes it in their hearts, this one will feel compelled to witness consistently, quite naturally, actually, uh, when they see the good news as truly good news. I think it can also be said that this one will witness to others with the right attitude as well. The one who is compelled to witness out of a sense of duty, they might witness in kind of a, a dour way, but the one who is feeling compelled to witness because they themselves cherish the good news of the gospel in their own hearts. They will likely witness in a very joyous way, you know. I just have to tell you, friend, of what Christ has done for us. They will testify concerning Christ with an attitude of thankfulness and love towards God for the marvelous grace that He has shown to us in Christ Jesus. So Christian sojourners must witness, this is true, and and certainly we may witness being driven by a sense of duty, and I do suppose that it is better to speak of Christ to others out of a sense of duty than to not speak of Him at all. Are you following with me there? Uh, It is better to speak of Christ out of duty than not at all. But it would be far better if we spoke enthusiastically of Christ because we ourselves are overwhelmed with the kindness of God towards us. It would be better if we witness being driven by a sense of awe and gratitude towards God concerning His grace. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, have you contemplated the gospel? Have you contemplated it in the past? And do you contemplate it regularly to this present day? 
Do you think deeply about the promises of God and their fulfillment in Christ Jesus? Do you ponder the glorious grace of God that has been shown to us in Christ Jesus? It will only be after we contemplate, comprehend, and cherish the significance of the victory that Christ has won for us that we will feel that natural urge to share this good news with others. So we must contemplate the gospel. The Lord's Day is a wonderful day to do that, isn't it? Here we contemplate the truth of the gospel together. But go on from this place and do not run away to common things. Treat this day as holy and and ponder the gloriousness of the gospel the rest of the day. Think of all that Christ has saved us from. Think of how much He suffered in order to do it. Think of, of how marvelous God's plan of redemption is. Think of the promises made even to Adam and then to Abraham and then to David. Think of the development of this marvelous plan of redemption until it culminated in Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Think of all of that. Ponder it. Think of all of the goodness that has come to you because Christ was crucified and risen. It truly is marvelous. We can spend our entire life contemplating uh, this marvelously good news and never plumb the depths of it. We must contemplate the gospel, brothers and sisters. It seems to me that this is what Moses experienced. He marveled over the grace of God and over the redemption that he had witnessed. He felt the natural compulsion to testify to his yet unbelieving father-in-law Jethro. And may the same be true of you and me as we ponder Christ crucified and risen and the hope that is ours through faith in him. The third point of the sermon is also a sub-point to the first and it will be very brief. To witness faithfully, Christian sojourners must also contemplate the judgment that awaits all who are not united to Christ by faith. Our text for today does not say this explicitly either, but I think it is safe to say that Moses was moved to witness to Jethro because he loved him and was concerned for his eternal destiny. Moses knew, just as Abraham did, that salvation from sin was received through faith in the promised Messiah. Moses knew this as well as Abraham did. Moses knew that the Israelites' redemption from Egypt was not the full and final redemption that the Christ would accomplish, but was a small step forward, a partial fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham, and a foretaste of the salvation that was to come. This just came to mind, but there is a passage in Deuteronomy where where Moses speaks to the people of Israel saying, Someday, there's going to be a prophet who arises, kind of like me. Listen to him. Who's he speaking of there? Christ, the Messiah. You know. In other words, Moses had this awareness that he was not the man. And that this redemption that was worked for Israel to redeem them from Egyptian bondage was not the full redemption that God had promised beforehand, but was but a foretaste of a greater act of redemption to to come. One greater is on the way. Listen to him, Moses says. Moses knew all of this. He knew that salvation from sin was received through faith in the promises of God. He knew that a Messiah was coming. He knew what Abraham knew beforehand. And when Moses witnessed to Jethro, he was not merely imploring Jethro to believe that the Lord had rescued Israel from Egypt. Are you following me? That wasn't his goal. 
but to believe in the Lord who had redeemed Israel, for the Lord had also promised to provide a Savior who would one day defeat the serpent, providing eternal salvation from sin and its consequences. I mean, that is very clear from the text. Um, we're going to see in a moment that Jethro does believe and he rejoices in the redemption that was accomplished for Israel. But what does he do also? He worships. He worships Yahweh. He worships the Lord. So, so there's something more going on here than just Moses saying to Jethro, hey, look at what God did for us, earthly speaking. I just want to share the good news with you. No, we're going to see it in a moment. Moses was also imploring Jethro to worship Yahweh, to worship Him, to put his trust in Him. What compelled Moses to testify concerning the Lord's redemption? First, he himself marveled over the victory the Lord had won. Second, I believe it was his true concern for the soul of his father-in-law. Stated differently, Moses was moved to witness by his love for God and his love for his fellow man. Brothers and sisters, I've exhorted you to comprehend or to contemplate the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you would see it as the marvelously good news that it is and, and thus be compelled to speak of it to others. And now I'm compelling you to contemplate the fate of those not in Christ. The scriptures are clear. Those not in Christ will be judged for their sins. According to Jesus, they will be cast into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This too should motivate us to witness. The fourth and final point of the sermon today will also be brief. It is this. The goal of witnessing is the worship of God through Christ Jesus. We do not witness to convert sinners to believe in the existence of God merely. Nor do we witness to make men moral, nor to move them to have our political views or something like that. No, we testify to others concerning Christ and the victory that He has won for us so that men and women, boys and girls, would turn from their sins, believe upon Christ, be reconciled to God through faith in Him, and give Him the worship that is due His name. That is the aim of all of our witnessing. This is the goal. Yes, it is true. For it to happen, the Spirit of God must work upon the hearts of men to regenerate them. But this is our aim, the worship of God. And so we pray that God would do His work in the hearts of men as we are faithful to do ours by telling others of the glories of Christ and compelling them to turn from their sins to Christ and to give worship to God. It is truly marvelous to consider how Jethro, the priest of Midian, responded to Moses' testimony Concerning the redemption the Lord had worked for Israel, Jethro said, listen, listen carefully to his words. Blessed, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. So, so Jethro, this priest of Midian, blesses Yahweh. Now I know, he says, that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all gods. Now I know it. Because in this affair they, the Egyptians, dealt arrogantly with people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is phenomenal. Uh, what a marvelous picture this is. It's not just that Mo uh, Jethro believed uh, Moses' report concerning the redemption. Uh, this man, the priest of Midian, was moved to worship and was brought to a place of communion with God and with His people. It is, it is phenomenal to consider what has happened here. 
And truth be told, I've not left much time to consider these wonderful words, but perhaps I can bring out the glory of them by making five very brief observations. One, these words came from the lips not of a Hebrew, but of a Gentile, and not of one who had previously believed in the promises of God, but one who likely remained skeptical up to this point. After hearing of the marvelous works of the Lord, he worshipped God setting apart of the Hebrews was always with this goal in mind to bring the Gentiles also to himself. We have to remember that. Abraham was set apart so that through him the nations would be blessed. And here there's a little foretaste of this immediately after Israel's redemption from Egypt. Two, the words he blessed the Lord are significant when considered in the light of what God had said to Father Abraham many generations earlier. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As I have said, we're getting a little taste of that here with Jethro coming and worshiping, Jethro coming and blessing the name of the Lord. And not, longer af- not long after this passage that I've just read in Genesis 12, We read that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Here I'm simply making this connection. Abraham had this encounter with Melchizedek, the the, the king and prince of of Salem. And what did this king and prince of Salem do? He was was in fact a... a, um, I, I said prince, didn't I? King and, and priest of Salem do. Uh, he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed the Lord. And, and now Jethro, the priest of Midian, does the same thing. We're, we're to make that connection here. The, the witnessing of Moses had this powerful effect upon Jethro, the priest of Midian. He blessed the Lord. Three, as Jethro contemplated what the Lord had done for Israel, he said, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. This has been said before. The Exodus event was, among other things, a demonstration of the supremacy of God over arrogant Pharaoh and the so-called gods of Egypt. God had done the same thing in the spiritual realm through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Uh, This is what God did through Christ in the spiritual realm. He he put these spiritual powers to open shame uh, through the life of Christ, the miracles He performed through His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, Jethro said. And many have said a similar thing after witnessing or hearing testimony regarding the miracles of Christ and the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now I know that this was the Christ, the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh. Now I know, based upon what I have seen, this, this redemption was accomplished on earth in in a visible way, and it did move others to say, now I know, now I can see that this was the Christ, the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh, etc. For this knowledge of Jethro did not remain in the head only, but penetrated to the heart too, and it resulted in worship. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. If we are to be faithful in our witnessing, We must urge sinners to do the same. They must turn from their sins. They must believe upon Christ. They must worship God through Him as God has prescribed in His Word. Five, 
Jethro's faith resulted in communion with God and with God's people. This is truly marvelous. Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. I suppose if we are unaware of this theme in Scripture, we may see this as just a common thing, you know, a description of Moses and his father-in-law just having dinner together, you know. But if we're familiar with this theme of God's people eating, not just together, notice, but before God, uh, we will see that this was a very significant moment. It, it, it's a bit like us coming together and eating together before God. Uh, this signifies Jethro's union with the people of God, the Israel of God by faith. This signifies, this moment here, his his union with God, this signifies uh, a covenantal thing, a covenantal relationship now that Jethro has entered into uh, by faith. Uh, That is what is being described here. And this will become very clear as we continue on in our study of the book of Exodus. It is a a truly marvelous thing that happened between Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro. Uh, This is the thing that is signified every Lord's Day as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Through Christ's broken body and shed blood, we have been reconciled to God by faith. Something of that is signified even here in Exodus 18 as Jethro offers a sacrifice to the Lord and communes with God and His people. It's marvelous to consider. So much more can be said about our witnessing, brothers and sisters. In particular, more needs to be said about tactfulness, I think. But here in this sermon, I have attempted to address the heart of the matter. We must remember that as Christian sojourners, we must witness. And if we hope to witness regularly and in the right spirit, we must contemplate, comprehend, and cherish the significance of the victory that Christ has won for us in our own hearts. We must also contemplate the judgment that awaits all who are not united to Christ by faith. And in this way, we will be moved to witness, not by mere duty, but by a true love for God and our fellow man. Lastly, we must have the worship of God as our aim whenever we witness Many other benefits come through faith in Christ, but our supreme aim must be the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would move us to witness faithfully as your people. Stir within us a true love and appreciation for Christ. Increase our knowledge of Christ and what it is that he has accomplished for us. Uh, Move us to cherish all that has come to us through Him. May we stand in awe of You, O God, of Your mercy and grace, of the glories of the Gospel. Father, may we be eager to share this good news with others too. Father, I pray that You would do this through this congregation. Add to our number, O Lord. I pray that we would be blessed to see true conversions, that we would be blessed to baptize, that we would be blessed to teach those baptized to observe all that you have commanded us until you come again, O Lord. I pray that you would do this through the preaching ministry of the church, through those who have the gift of evangelism, but through every member also, as we all prepare ourselves to give a reason for the hope that is in us, with gentleness and with respect. O Lord, go with us and help us. In Christ's name we pray.